I don't know if you can relate to discouragement. Anybody here ever been discouraged before? I know I have. I heard of a preacher who asked his congregation, he said, have you ever seen anybody perfect? Have you ever heard of anybody who's perfect? And he was surprised when a little milk toast man in the back of the room raised his hand and the pastor said, have you ever heard of anybody perfect? He said, yes, my wife's first husband. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Dr. Brogy continues his look at the prophet Haggai. Last time, we examined this prophet's first sermon of four as outlined in the second shortest book of the Bible. That message of God through Haggai dealt with priorities. A second sermon on discouragement is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, which is where we take our text from today. Just like today, the people in Haggai's day shared a concern about their physical well-being, about the economy, and about the political realm. And Haggai will address these concerns in this section of Scripture, and will address the fact that our God is the Lord of the heavens, of the harvest, and of history. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins today's message. He's sometimes called the prophet of common sense. On the day of Jesus Christ, there was one scroll that had 12 books on it. It was commonly called the Twelve. And about the fourth century, it later came to be known as the Minor Prophets. Um, it was a scroll that had on them 12 books, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And so they named them minor prophets, not because they were any less important or less inspired, but because their message was far more concise than those five what we call major prophets. In fact, the last 12 books of the Bible are about the same length as the book of Isaiah, 67 chapters verses 66 in Isaiah. Now, have you found the passage? Let's look. Haggai chapter 2 and we want to begin in verse 1. We come to Haggai's second sermon. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea also on the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And we saw last time that really to understand any book of the Old Testament, we need to understand the historical context in which it falls. 
And Haggai is what we call a post-exilic prophet. What do we mean by that? Well, let's review for a second. And I'm doing this not to give you a history lesson, but I want you to understand the historical framework of the Old Testament. So as you study it, you'll be able to understand it so much better because God wants to change our lives by it. In Genesis chapter 12, God established a nation that today we call the Jews through a man named who? Abraham. Very good. That was about 2000 BC, about 4,000 years ago. Abraham was promised that through his seed, through his lineage, all the nations of the world would be blessed because through his lineage would come the promised Messiah, fulfilled, of course, in Jesus. Now, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, and the other was named Isaac. All right. Ishmael had how many sons? Do you remember? Twelve. Those twelve sons form the twelve tribes that make up the Arab nations today. Isaac, by comparison, had only two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the son of promise. Through his lineage, it was going to continue this promise to Abraham. He, in turn, had 12 sons that make up the 12 tribes of the nation Israel. His family grew, was multiplying. His brothers got mad at Joseph. He ended up being sold into slavery into Egypt. They got hungry, ended up coming down into Egypt. God took care and preserved those 12 tribes through Joseph. A Pharaoh came along who didn't know Joseph, and so as a result, the children of Israel had grown so large they were brought into slavery as God had told Abraham it would happen for 400 years. The end of 400 years, God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt through his servant who? Moses, that's right. Moses brought them out of Egypt by God's mighty hand they went into the promise, uh, into the wilderness, but because of their unbelief, they wandered around there for about 40 years. Moses, because of his disobedience, was not allowed to go in, but God allowed the children of Israel to go in through Joshua, 1405 BC. Joshua dies, and the people are ruled by judges for a period of time. We have the book of Judges. The judges are not good enough for the people. They want a king. And so God gives them their request. He gives them a human king. The first three are the most famous in Israel's history. Saul, David, and who else? Solomon. Great. Under those three kings, all the 12 tribes of Israel are united. But because of Solomon's moral compromise, God told him that he was going to divide his kingdom, but he'd wait to do it until under his son, because Solomon's dad was David. And David was a, God, a man after God's own heart. The twelve tribes split. The ten northern tribes were called Israel. The two southern tribes were called what? Judah. Very good. Both dried up spiritually. First, Israel. They went into idolatry. And so God judged them as he prophesied through one of his prophets. The Assyrians came down and they were brought away, 722 B.C. Then the Assyrians were overthrown by the Babylonians. And then, while the Babylonians were in control, Jeremiah the prophet prophesied that because of the disobedience and idolatry of Judah, that God would judge them through Nebuchadnezzar. And so the Babylonians came down, took away Judah for how many years? Do you remember? 
70 years, 70 years fixed because they had disobeyed the Sabbath year. Once every seventh year, they were to allow the land to, to rest for a whole year, and they disobeyed it for 490 years, and so God set the judgment at 70 years. Now, while the kingdom is divided, before the people are brought into exile, those prophets are called pre-exilic, pre-exile prophets. They're carried away into Babylon, and there's two prophets prophesying to Judah while they're under Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel, and you remember the other one? Daniel. That's great. You guys are sharp today. Now, those two men prophesy. At the end of the 70 years, God brings them back into the land. There are actually three returns. And there are two prophets who are prophesying early in the days of, Ju of Israel or Judah's return. Haggai and his contemporary, you remember? Zechariah. Those two books right next to each other. These guys are preaching, in fact, within the same months of each other. And that's why the dates in this book are so critical as you read the book of Zechariah. The, third, the first return came uh, under Zerubbabel. The people left, but not everybody wanted to leave. Life was pretty good back in Babylon. They'd become pretty successful, the Jews. And then uh, about 70 years later, some more folks come under Ezra. And then finally, the last group, 13 years after that, come under Nehemiah. While Nehemiah is getting the people to rebuild the walls, shortly after that, while he's alive and ruling, there's a man who's prophesying in his day, and his name was who? Malachi. Very good. Malachi was a contemporary with uh, Nehemiah. And so that's the close of the Old Testament. Now, the last time we saw, in terms of the immediate setting of this book, that the people came back into the land. They were excited. They were glad to be back in God's city. They cleared away the debris for the temple. They had started to lay the foundation. They had reinstituted the animal sacrifices and had built an altar. But because of discouragement and lost priorities and disobedience, the work of the Lord stops. What happened under that is covered in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. So God raises up the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to, to get the people back on track. I asked you to read the book through this week, and I hope you had a chance to do that. Because if you did, as we think about an overview of the book, it divides neatly into four parts. And they're each uh, dated, and they consist of four sermons given by this prophet. He gives four sermons to stir the people up, to go back and do the work of the Lord, to finish the temple, and to live a life of holiness in faith. We looked at the first sermon last week. It's found in chapter 1. And it deals with the problem of priorities. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, what we just read, is the second sermon. And in this sermon, he deals with the problem of discouragement. The third sermon begins in chapter 2 and verse 10 and goes all the way through verse 19. Many of your Bibles have set those off in paragraphs. And there he deals with the problem of relationship. And then finally, in the end of the book, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, he deals with the problem of perspective. To put it a slightly different way, in the first sermon, he tries to arouse the people, to stir them up to do the work of the Lord and to build the temple. 
In the second sermon, he assures the people that God is with them, that God will bless them. In the third sermon, he affirms the people that they must live a life of holiness, that God will only use a clean instrument to accomplish his work. And in the fourth and final sermon, it's a message of anticipation. He deals with perspective. And the secret of perspective is to keep your eyes on the goal. You know where you're going, and it gives you perspective for the day that you're in. So let's look at the second sermon this morning, the problem of discouragement, where he assures the people that the Lord is with him. Now, you and I face discouragement, and people did in Haggai's day as well. In fact, he addresses three specific issues in this sermon that concern us. People are concerned about what happens in the physical, material universe. Whether it's some kind of cataclysmic event, an earthquake, a hurricane, famine, AIDS, people get concerned about those kinds of things. People are also concerned about the economy. Everyone's worried about how to make a living. The national debt, inflation, recession, the stock market crashing, Social Security going under, and so forth. And we also get concerned about the political realm. What's going to happen politically? Who's going to be elected next? And Haggai deals with these three problems because he wants the people to understand three things about God as they relate to these three problems. First, he tells them that our God is the Lord of the heavens. Second, he tells them that our God is the Lord of the harvest. And finally, he's going to tell us that our God is the Lord of history. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that our God is the Lord of the heavens. Notice, if you will, verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. You might want to write out there in your margin, October 21st, 520 B.C. That's as it parallels to our calendar. Now, this date is significant for several reasons. First, it tells us that after the people had begun work on the temple the second time, which we're told in verse 15, was the 24th day of the sixth month, 24 days after Haggai began preaching to these folks, they got back to the work of rebuilding the temple. And so when this message comes, they've only been at it about a month. The date is also significant Because in the Old Testament, you might want to write Leviticus 23 in the margin, Leviticus 23. This is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time of thanksgiving, of praise that Israel would give to God for his past deliverance out of Egypt and for his bountiful blessings of that year in taking care of him. The closest parallel that we would have in our culture is what we call thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving wasn't too great this year because as we saw last time, the harvest hadn't been too good. Things were a little bit dry. Now, we read in verse 2, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, also to Joshua the high priest and to the remnant of the people and tell them this, verse 3, who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? You go back and you read Ezra 1-6 through and you read Zechariah 
you discover that when the people start the work the second time, they get discouraged. You've got some of these oldie goldies who have been around for a long time. They were there when the people were brought away in exile. They had seen the Solomonic temple that was built under King Solomon that was a masterpiece. They remembered that building. They're over 70 years old, these people. And they begin to think, boy, this place that we're building is a shack compared to what Solomon did for the Lord. Have you ever been in a church like that? You know, people talk about the good old days. And oh, our pastor years ago, he was a great pastor. God was really moving. Oh, our pastor's good now, but boy, you should have been here years ago. That's really encouraging. That really helps you. <laughs> I don't know if you can relate to discouragement. Anybody here ever been discouraged before? I know I have. I heard of a preacher who asked his congregation, he said, have you ever seen anybody perfect? Have you ever heard of anybody who's perfect? And he was surprised when a little milk toast man in the back of the room raised his hand and the pastor said, have you ever heard of anybody perfect? He said, yes, my wife's first husband. <laughs> See, no sooner had these people begun to work on the temple that skepticism and discouragement set in. And so Haggai wants to address that. But this attack is different from the one that came 16 years before. The last attack was on the outside. The unsaved who came in and discouraged God's people. This attack comes from within. And so God is going to tell the people, you don't have to be discouraged, you can be encouraged. Because the moment you said yes, that you would get your priorities right with God as He dealt with in the first sermon, God promised that He would bless you. But the moment you say yes to God and set your priorities straight, many times that's when the spiritual battle will crank up. And so these people are asking, is the Lord still with us like He was in Solomon's day? Does God know and care about the work that we're trying to do for Him? And the answer, yes. Notice what he says in verse 4. Take now courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua, declares the Lord. And he says, take courage, you all the people of the land, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Three times God says, don't be discouraged. Take courage, be encouraged, because I am with you. Go to work. Go to work and be encouraged and remember my promise in the past, verse 5. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, so do not fear. Now a promise is only as good as the person who gave it. And so why can these people be courageous? Why do these people need not to fear? Why do these people not have to be discouraged? Because the God of heaven gave the promise that He would be with them and that He would bless them. Notice, if you will, how verse four, 6 begins. He begins with a three-letter word, for, F-O-R. In the, in the Hebrew language, it's a causal. You could translate it, because. Take courage, fear not. Why? Because thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Now, five times in verses 6 through 9, God refers to Himself as the Lord of hosts. 
And he's not just being repetitive. He's trying to drive home a point to the people that they need to see. It's literally, it's the Hebrew word sabaoth. The Lord sabaoth. Have you ever heard that term before? Sure you have. When we sing that song that Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. He said, did we in our own strength confide? Confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabaoth, there's the same Hebrew word, is His name. From age to age the same. He must win the battle. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord God Almighty. Turn to 1 Samuel 17. Hold your finger here, would you? And go to 1 Samuel chapter 17 for a moment. This is the same name that David used when he came up against Goliath. And this name speaks about the greatness of our God. Notice, if you will, 1 Samuel, have you found it? Chapter 17, and I want you to look at verse 41. God says here, give you a moment to find it. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. So here's little David, a shepherd boy with a sling and five smooth stones, and he comes against Goliath, this nine-foot-tall man who comes with all of his bronze armor. Notice verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And I love David's response. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle of the Lord is the Lord's, and He will give it into your hands. David had a concept of God that you and I need to have today. Here are these folks, his compatriots, were looking at Goliath and they were saying, look how much bigger he is than we are. And they were all afraid of him. But David looked at him and he said, look at how much smaller he is than our great God, the Lord of hosts. David knew that he was the Lord Sabaoth, Lord God Almighty, the Lord of all power. The people said, Goliath. He's too big to hit. David said, he's too big to miss because of the greatness of our God. Now turn back to Haggai. He uses the exact same term, the same compound name on God. That's the perspective he wants you to have. And let me say this. The book of Haggai is not what God has said. 
It is what God is saying. God wants His people to hear this today. That our God is great. Now notice verse 6. Verses 6-9, through by the way, are prophetic with the exception of verse 8. He's speaking about what's going to happen in the future. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth to see also in the dry land. Look over at chapter 2 in verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. He wants them to understand He is the Lord of the heavens. He is the Lord of the earth. He is the Lord of the sea. He is the Lord of the material universe. Why? Because He created it. He made it. And He's going to shake it because He's in control of it. Now think about creation with me for just a moment. Think about our great God who created the universe. Moses said, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33.6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. God created the material universe and because He made it, He controls it. It always tickles me. I hear these scientists wanting to talk about how we need to discover the mystery of creation. Friend, there's no mystery. God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke it into existence. Now, as I was reading over the creation account this week, it struck me when I think of the vast universe that God has made. He says in Genesis 1.16, He made the heavens and the earth and the suns and He made all the stars. He just makes, a, just makes one little phrase. He made the stars also. It's amazing how God describes with such simplicity how He created the whole universe. And yet, it blessed my heart to think about the fact when you read the book of Exodus... Though God only takes a couple of chapters on creation, you read Exodus in chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, God uses to describe the construction of this little tent out in the wilderness that we call the tabernacle. Now He did that because the tabernacle was a symbol of redemption. And it tells me that God is a God whose heart is in redemption. And so our God is a great God. Paul says that the heavens are declaring, the psalmist says, the glory of the Lord. Paul says His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature are clearly seen through the things that He created. The fool, the psalmist said, has said there is no God because all he has to do is look at creation. Now in our solar system, we have a sun with nine planets that rotate around it, and there are 28 moons that rotate around those planets. Now, we get so amazed sometimes when we think about the greatness of this piece of turf that we're sitting on that we call planet Earth. But have you ever thought about, for instance, Jupiter? It's not twice as big as Earth. It's not three times as big as Earth. It is 1,300 times bigger than the planet Earth. God did that. You know, scientists tell us that stars at a minimum, some of them in the Milky Way, are 300 million miles wide. A single star. We're told today that there are more stars just in this solar system than all the grains of sand on all the beaches in the world. Our God is a great God. But this solar system, 
Our earth is just a, a speck in this solar system, and this solar system is just a speck in God's universe. And Haggai wants to remind the people that God is over it all. He can shake this universe. He can do with it whatever He wants to do with it because He made it. Truly, our God's creation is awe-inspiring. If you'd like a copy of today's message on discouragement, call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and ask for message HAG2. Tomorrow, Pastor Bogie will continue a look at the discouragement seen through the eyes of Haggai as we search the Scriptures.